Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're not already there, I continue with a little bit of a departure from our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We call this mini-series a self-cleaning church. It's related to what Jesus said in Matthew 7 verse 15, beware of false prophets. And he especially gave warning to us to beware because they arise from within. And so we've talked about that a good bit. I'm not going to belabor that point. But let me just say that we need to quarantine from unbelief. We need to quarantine from error and false doctrine. We need to guard the church doors, not from sinners who want to come and hear the Word. God forbid that we ever do that in that sense. But we do need to be like a self-cleaning oven and quarantine ourselves from certain influences and influence answers. Because if we don't, you know what will happen? And this is happening all across America in churches that once stood for the things of Christ and had an influence. We will lose our savor. We will lose our power. I remind you it was Abraham, the separated man, living in tents, that had power to help when Sodom was overrun and taken captive. And he took 318 servants trained in his old household, and he went after those marauding, kidnapping kings and recovered everything. It was Abraham, the separated man, that had power to do that, not Lot the compromiser. Thank you. Now, we need to be reminded of that. Do we want God's blessing? Do we want God's help in our church? Then we need to be a self-cleaning church. I'll take the time to read the entire chapter. If I have to cut something out for the sake of time, I'll cut out what I was going to say, not what God had to say. Verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous or dangerous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Without natural affection, oh, how true that is, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And then the command is this, from such turn away, avoid them. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres, those magicians in the court of Pharaoh, withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, and they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was." But thou, Timothy, hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers or impostors shall wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou, Timothy, in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, 
knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then the familiar verses we've often cited when we talk about the inspiration of the Word of God. All Scripture, every bit of it, Old Testament, New Testament, precepts, historical books, poetical books, prophecy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that means for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, adequate, truly furnished unto all good works. Very important passage in Paul's last preserved letter, 2 Timothy, directed to a young pastor and his protege. He was writing to him as a pastor of a church, and his words echo that. He was concerned about not just Timothy, but the church. The church is a big deal as far as God is concerned. In the minds of many, it's just another charity. I'm continually amazed at the way the church is treated in even fundamental circles. We can skip the Lord's table. It doesn't bother us. It's not the way it used to be. It's not just another charity. Jesus died for the church's purity. Jesus promised the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. The church, Paul said to the same young man, Timothy, is the pillar and ground, the, the support, the undergirding of the truth. Is that important? It's not the seminaries. Who's to guard the truth? Who is to preserve it intact? Who's to pass it on to the next generation? The church! That's why I study. That's why I dig. I want to get it right, and then I want to get it across to you. The church is made up of humans, <clears throat> fallible humans. Humans are less powerful than angels. I think you're aware of that. Angels excel in strength, the Bible says. When Jesus was made a man, he was made lower than the angels. Remember that? Lower than the angels. Humans are less powerful than angels. But listen to me. One day, believers will collectively judge angels. Paul said that expressly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. And in view of that fact, Paul reasoned with the Corinthians that they should be able to regulate matters in, their, in the church, which was riddled with problems, the Corinthian church. And his reasoning went, went like this, if you can't judge things among yourselves, how are you going to be able to judge angels? So let me summarize, as you'll see on the screen. I think this is a, a good summarizing statement. The local church should be self-cleaning, keeping out those who would contaminate it, and building up those who belong there. Keeping out those who contaminate it, and building up those who belong there. 
In the last days, several writers in the New Testament say that there will be a great apostasy. There will be a great falling away. That's already happening. People and pastors are deconverting. In some circles, it's being celebrated. I'm completely baffled by that. And as the apostasy deepens, the need to do what I'm talking about today becomes even greater. I'm not sure we understand the circumstances when Paul wrote this to Timothy. We esteemed Paul next to Jesus Christ and what a godly, wonderful man he was. But when he wrote this epistle, he said, all those who are in Asia Minor have turned from me. And he named two of them. Before he got through, he said, Demas has forsaken me. Demas had been a fellow helper to the truth. He didn't feel like a smashing success of how much, how many people he had attracted. I hope we'll do some inventory today as a church. How well is our church doing in measuring up to Paul's inspired, infallible instructions to this young pastor and protege? I'm aware of the time, a little bit later than usual before I get into the message, but we're going to talk about two kinds of people. I've already talked about one of them, two kinds of people we need to guard against, and then talk about the people that we need to follow. I closed the message last Sunday by saying, paraphrasing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow the man who follows Christ. Follow the man who follows Christ. And if you're not sure, you need to check him out. Not only does a self-cleaning church quarantine itself against from phony believers and corrupt leaders that we talked about last week, but number two, a self-cleaning church educates itself. Paul draws a contrast here and gives a more positive tone in verse 10 of, of chapter 3. In verse 10, we read, but, and that's an emphatic but, a contrasting thought to what he had said before. He said, but thou, Timothy, he's talking to, hast fully known my doctrine, my teaching, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, and so forth. And then he goes on to give a catalog of his sufferings and of his persecutions, as if that were a badge of honor. That baffles me. Who do you know of today that's a leader in our Christian circles that cites as his credentials all that he's suffered for Jesus? That's not usually the criteria, is it? Paul is a modest man. He's not stuck on himself. He was sincere when he referred to himself as the chiefest of sinners and less than the least of all saints. He said, what I am, I am, and the word only is implied there only by the grace of God. But for that very reason, what God's grace had transformed him into, he didn't hesitate to tell Timothy, Follow me, and you won't go wrong. Follow me, 
because I'm following Christ. A self-cleaning church does that. It knows who it can trust. Follow the man who's following Jesus. Know him. Educate yourself about him. We should only follow trusted sources. The Apostle Paul knew his mentor, or Timothy knew his mentor Paul. Let's just take a brief cursory review of what the Bible says about Paul's relationship with Timothy. Timothy uh, uh, had traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey. He knew his teaching, his conduct better than anybody, and he knew that he was not a phony. I'm sure he saw his faults, but he knew he wasn't a phony. He knew that Paul practiced what he preached. Paul wasn't like so many preachers today whose names are much set by that preach faith but then walk by sight that tell others to sacrifice and give that seed gift to their ministry, but they live in luxury themselves. Paul was the real deal. He was sound in doctrine. We know he was used of God to write at least 13 of the epistles of the New Testament, and when we get to heaven, we're going to find out if he wrote Hebrews. That would make 14. And isn't it amazing that God's faithful ones God's people recognized the stamp of canonicity on those letters that were circulated, both the pastoral epistles and the letters to the churches. Paul was sound in doctrine. Paul was exemplary in godliness. He wasn't a professional preacher. His heart was in it. He didn't just try to turn a phrase in a way that would cause people to say, wow. Paul loved Timothy dearly. Timothy knew that. He knew that his mentor would gladly give his life for this beloved protege, his son in the faith. He knew something more than that. He knew that Paul loved the world of men for whom Jesus died. So much so that Paul's heart broke as it was in the city of Athens when he beheld a city wholly given to idolatry, and his zeal for the lordship and supremacy of Jesus Christ just kicked in, and he thought, that's not right. Only my Savior deserves that kind of esteem and reverence. Paul was patient under tribulation. You see, Timothy was from the city of Lystra. Remember what happened at Lystra? That's where Paul was stoned and left for dead. And while the disciples gathered around him, God just miraculously raised him up. I think he really died. And out of them, the persecutions, all the Lord delivered me, Paul would later testify. And I'm sure that Timothy was amazed to hear that his mentor, the Apostle Paul, beaten lifeless with the stones that crushed him, just amazingly rose up, and the next day went on to his next assignment in the nearby city of Derby. He didn't take a sabbatical to get his nerves back together. He didn't get PTSD counseling. They didn't have it back then. Thank God for it, by the way. No extended stay in a rehab place or recovery facility. No request for a witness protection program. 
You can't stop a guy like that. Utterly dead to self and alive unto Jesus Christ. He counted not his life dear unto himself. He died daily. And Timothy had a front row seat to see those sufferings that Paul endured. In Thessalonica and Berea, he saw how the Jews there, moved by hatred and envy, stirred up the people against Paul. Paul had to hightail it out of there and get to Athens. So it was with a clear conscience that Paul tells his protege here, not only in verse 10, but in verse 14, but continue thou. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Timothy was not only to continue in what he learned as a disciple, the doctrine, the beliefs, but also in what he had been assured of. That's an interesting phrase. The word in the Greek means convinced of, relying upon. You know, it refers to refers to convictions. Do you have any convictions? Do you have any core values? Things that are non-negotiables. They're not up for grabs. They're settled in your mind. I ask that question because let me tell you, when the chips are down, your convictions will determine your conduct. You will recall Timothy's background. His father was not a believer, evidently. His father was a Greek, so that's why Paul, as his spiritual father, meant a great deal to him. His mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois, her name. They were godly, and they were wise enough, I'm sure they were praying, Lord, give our son a positive, godly male role model. That's why Paul says here in verse 15, and know that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, from a child, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I hesitate to say something now out of fear of being misunderstood. In all likelihood, I will. But God knows my heart. I've been at this thing long enough. To know a little bit about how Paul must have felt when he told the Corinthians what he said in chapter 4 and verse 15 of his first epistle. I want you to see that. Would you turn there? Please keep your finger in 2 Timothy 3. But look at 1 first, uh, first Corinthians 4 and verse 15. First Corinthians 4 verse 15. He writes from his heart, he has to be like I am this morning willing to risk being misunderstood to even say this. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And isn't it interesting in the very next verse he says, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Similar to what he said in chapter 11 verse 1. You see, Paul had personally led to Christ many of these Corinthians when he labored among them for 18 months on his second missionary journey as is recorded in Acts chapter 18. Silas and Timothy joined him there. Timothy was one of the two. 
Now, Paul was a spirit-filled man. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Tremendous spirit-filled man. But let's be honest with what the Bible says. His persona was not impressive. And it got back to Paul later. I don't know how much later. But he, they didn't have telephone and instant communication, so it had to be a, a time later. It got back to him what people in the church at Corinth, some of whom he led to Christ, probably many of whom, what they were saying about him. And they were saying this, oh, his letters are weighty and powerful. I mean, they're meaty, they're strong. He's got away with words, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. In the Greek, it literally means his speech is nothing. Paul didn't hold you spellbound. And these starstruck Corinthians became enamored with some flashy teachers who came in after Paul left and undermined Paul's apostolic authority. That really happened. And so many in the church, by the time that Paul got this word of what they were saying, had evidently moved on. Moveon.org. They were now following these Johnny-come-latelys who seemed so flashy and so smart. And it broke Paul's heart. Had these cool dudes agonized in prayer? Had they shed tears to seek to woo and to win these Corinthians to the Savior? Doubtful. But they were the popular teachers now. They commanded the biggest following. And so I'll leave it to you. Was it pride or jealousy on Paul's part to express his great sorrow of heart? I don't think so. And though I follow with unequal footsteps by far, I've been in the pastoral ministry for 40 years between the mission field and here. I can think immediately of people that God has enabled me to personally lead to Him and pour myself into over a period of time. And a number of these babes in Christ responded for a time. I can think of a fellow that was over at my house every night. He couldn't get enough of the Word. We had to tell him, it's time to go. we got to get some sleep. He would eat fruit cake till it was gone. He just couldn't get enough of the word and spiritual nurturing. He humbly received loving rebuke. He humbly received personal discipleship. He made himself accountable to me, but then he and others like him, something happened. They got to the place where they wanted to see what was out there. And so they check out another church. That's where others his age were flocking. That's where he could be a spectator and not be noticed. The music was more upbeat. It was more entertaining. 
He could attend there for years and the lead pastor would never know who he was. There were a lot of specialists with seminary degrees running around. May not have been 10,000 of them like Paul said here, but it seems like it. Maybe he could get an appointment with one of the counselors. But did they weep over his soul? Did they agonize over his struggles with sin? Did they ask the tough questions? Did they hold him accountable? Did they warn him with solemnity and love, with rare exceptions? To ask the question is to answer it. No. And so Paul, looking back at a selfless ministry and looking forward to the shadow of the guillotine, he knew he was about to be offered and and, and the time of his loosing was was at hand. And he says, Timothy, you're a pastor. Don't be like the 10,000 instructors in Christ. You know me. You know what I've preached. You know how I've lived. Do as I have done. Continue thou in the things you've learned and been convicted, convinced of, knowing of whom you have learned them. Timothy, don't be like those 10,000 instructors. Be a true spiritual father, even if your love is misunderstood and spurned at times. Timothy, keep the church pure, even if it's not always full. And Paul himself could say, the more I love, the less I be loved. Now, you can decide whether that's wallowing in self-pity or whether that's inspired. Know who you're learning from. Know about the nature of imposters. I won't say a lot about this because we've talked a whole lot about them. I skipped verse 13, but I ask you to revisit, revisit that verse. He says, but, there's a strong contrast there, evil men and seducers or imposters shall wax, shall grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me ask you, are preachers like myself just trying to be sensational? Are we paranoid when we warn so often of false teachers and charlatans? I hope you don't think so, because Jesus and Paul sure warned a whole lot about them. Again, we hold Paul in high esteem today. And we should. What a godly man. Outside the Lord Jesus Christ, I think no greater man has ever walked the face of this earth. He's celebrated after 2,000 years of church history. But like so many who have followed in his train, he was belittled by the popular preachers of his day. Some of whom actually preached the truth but had insincere motives. And as Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, they, they give the truth, they preach the gospel, but they're trying to add affliction to my bonds, to my chains. They're preaching it out of contention and out of envy, not out of love. But he said, I'm still glad the gospel's being preached. Charles Spurgeon right before he died, said, I'm about to be eaten alive by wolves, but the more distant future will vindicate me. The great Spurgeon, thousands flocked to hear the word at his lips, but he wasn't popular in his own denomination. He was outvoted 2007 about having a statement of faith. His own brother initiated the motion 
he said to his biographer, the fight is killing me. Oh, we quote him today like he's been heralded throughout history as a great, great man. No, he wasn't for a long time. Neither was Paul. You know, I can't help but wonder if Paul's resume would measure up to today's well-established criteria for the ideal Christian leader, a pastor, even a parachurch ministry head. Think of, I'm not trying to exaggerate anything. I'm just telling you exactly what we know from the Bible, okay? He was eccentric. Festus, the Roman governor, when Paul appeared before him, because Felix wanted him to hear, said, Paul, you're beside yourself. <laughs> much learning hath made you mad. Much learning hath driven you insane. You're crazy. His persona was not very impressive. As we said already, they were talking about him. They said, your bodily presence and your speech are contemptible. They amount to nothing, even though you've got away with words and you can write. And you're strong with that. He didn't wow people with his oratory. When he came to the star-struck Corinthians, the Bible says he came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. He didn't have much charisma. He had a prison record. He had a reputation of being extremely sectarian. He had a debilitating physical affliction. Everywhere he went, he stirred up trouble. Often it's said that he didn't check out the local inn. He checked out the local jail because he knew he'd end up there. He stayed dirt poor most of the time. He had to stop and make some tents with his own hands so they wouldn't be chargeable to any for giving them the gospel. His meekness was misconstrued as weakness. He didn't seem like a strong leader, but yet he regarded his sufferings as a badge of honor. Be honest with me. Would he have made the cut with most pastoral search committees? I don't think you'd have wanted somebody like that. But that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. He takes the things that are weak and perfects his strength in them. He takes the foolish things and confounds the wise. He takes the nondescript things, as Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and brings to nothing, brings to naught the things that are. Why? Here's why. Listen, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's all that matters. The Apostle Paul will be among those that Daniel described in chapter 12, verse 3, that will shine as the stars forever and ever in heaven even though they make, won't make a Hollywood star down here. The Lord knoweth them that are truly His. He puts a difference on them. He owns them. So I ask you as we leave this point, whose criteria for greatness are we going to accept? God's or man's? A self-cleaning church educates itself from trusted sources. Thirdly, a self-cleaning church fortifies itself. That's brought out in those familiar verses that close the chapter, verses 15 through 17. I'll just read them as I come to them. It talks about the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration. It's God-breathed. 
The Word of God is what makes a Christian strong. It is our spiritual food. As Jesus resisted the devil by quoting from the Word, He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. We need every word, by the way. Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's why from day one of my pastorate here, 23 years ago, one of our mottos has been declaring all the counsel of God. John, by inspiration, wrote at the close of the first century in his first epistle, chapter 2, along about verse 14, I think it is. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Praise God for young men being baptized this morning, as well as a mature man that's been with us for many years. But I won't hesitate to say it, Lucas. Hudson, be strong. You can be strong in the Lord your God. You have the Word of God abiding in you. Let it dwell in you richly. Overcome the wicked one. Defy the odds. That's the secret. I've learned in my Christian life of over 60 years now, that the the degree of my spiritual victory is directly proportional to my intake of this book. Directly. That's not just true for young men, as John addressed, but for everyone. I love what Jude said in his little one-chapter epistle right before the book of Revelation. In verse 20, with all of the sober warnings against false prophets, just like we've been talking about. Jude says this, but ye beloved, building up yourselves, that self-cleaning, self-maintaining church, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, and a few verses later, the the next verse, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Building up yourselves in the most holy faith. What is the most holy faith? It's not talking about the virtue of faith. It's talking about the body of revealed truth. It's talking about what Jude meant when he referred to in verse 4, the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. The Bible. Why do we need the Bible? If we're going to be a self-cleaning, self-maintaining church, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly what Paul said. We need it to be wise. He said to Timothy, the word is able to make thee wise. The scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation, or literally wise for salvation. That's the goal of learning scripture, to be wise enough to be saved. Parents, keep your children under the sound of the word of God. It's not music that draws them closer to Christ, even good music. It's the Word of God. The Bible is first and foremost. Before your children are even born, while they're in the womb, mama, keep them under the sound of the Word. I think there might be some sympathetic vibrations that go on there. 
I'm going to dedicate a child today in just a few moments, but sometimes the moms have verified, this is not always the case, but sometimes the moms have verified, they know your voice. They heard it even before they were born. Able to make thee wise unto salvation. The Bible is first and foremost, it's the book of redemption. Yet whenever it touches on matters of, of science or, or history or literature or geography, it's 100% accurate. It is not primarily a textbook of science, of history, literature, geography, ethics, but it's primarily a, the book of redemption, but it's 100% trustworthy. And God gave us this special book to show us the way to heaven, to help us know how to be declared righteous in His sight, to receive forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled to a holy God. Please note it is God alone who saves by faith in His Son. But what's His primary instrument? It's the Word of God. Being born again by the Word which abideth forever. That word gives us the wisdom that leads us to Christ. I love the clarity of John chapter 5, verse 24, my late father's favorite verse. It's inscribed on his tombstone in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word. Somehow people got to hear the word. They got to get the word. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath now present tense, everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. We hear the Word of God, and what does that do? That enlightens us to the truth, and the truth leads us to Him who is the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And Paul goes on to say in verse 15, it is through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's by faith that knowledge is turned into wisdom, by faith. You know, some people have the idea that the Bible is just some kind of magical book. It's a good luck charm. They put it under their pillow to sleep on it like they're going to get it by osmosis. They may kiss it repeatedly, and I'm not saying that can't be a sincere gesture. Please don't. The Bible's not magical. The Bible is supernatural. It's only potent when it's mixed with faith. Speaking of the Israelites whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, the writer to the Hebrews said, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Yeah, the Old Testament people. But it did not, but, but preached it did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And again, I'll say, as I've said so many times before, not just at funerals, but at other times, it's not the quality or even the quantity of your faith that saves, it's the object the object of your faith. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, verse 22. That's the verse that God used to save the man I was talking about a little while ago, Charles Adams Spurgeon. On a snowy Sunday morning when everybody else couldn't get to church, and he stopped by and didn't plan to, but the guy was practicing his sermon, and he said, young man, look, look. And he quoted this verse. Spurgeon looked and was transformed and saved. When Moses lifted up that serpent of brass in the wilderness, every one of those snake-bit Israelites who looked on that brazen serpent, picturing Jesus on the cross, 
were immediately healed. Can't you imagine old men, their eyes bedimmed with cataracts for which there was no surgery available? They could hardly move, but they shuffled to the tent door and they lifted up the flat flap and they could see that serpent of brass and immediately they were healed. Other men had 20-20 vision. They were healed. Those with severe myopia were healed. It wasn't the quantity. It wasn't the quality of their faith. It was the object. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We need the Word to be wise if we're going to clean ourselves and maintain ourselves. We need the Word to be profitable. The Bible makes us not only wise unto salvation, but it profits us once we are saved. If you don't have time for the Word of God in your daily life, you're too busy. You can't do without it. It equips you for righteous living. And four areas are cited here. All four of them are absolutely essential to keep the church clean. It's profitable for doctrine. That means for teaching. The teaching of Scripture is the foundation upon which we build our lives. We need all of the Scripture, like I said, declaring all the counsel of God. Some churches I can take you to, they're flabby and weak because they're unbalanced. They have little pet doctrines. They're emotionally driven. They won't last for multiple generations. Some of them are already gone under. Profitable for doctrine. For reproof, the Greek verb here means to rebuke. It's used only here in the New Testament. It comes from the root that means proof or evidence. Are we eager to have our sin and our error exposed so that we will be on the same wavelength as our God? God's Word exposes. It offers reproof. Like Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, said, if the Bible rubs you the wrong way, just turn the cat around. Who's the one that needs to change? Us. For correction. Correction picks up where rebuke leaves off. It comes from the Greek for a straightening up again. It's a, a rectification, rectifying matters that have been exposed and pointed out. The inspired Word of God reproves and corrects. The Bible convicts us. The Bible tears us down and then it rebuilds us. We got some soldiers here today, got some guys in their handsome military uniforms. I love to see it. They all had to go to something we know of as boot camp. They all had to hear that drill sergeant. Most of them would rather not even remember him. But he would get up and give the proverbial speech, we're going to break you down. For the next however how many weeks, I'm going to be your mama and your papa and everything to you. You've heard the spiel. Almost sounds like the Bible here, doesn't it? 
Now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them, among all them which are sanctified. Isn't the Bible able to rebuild after it reproves? And then it's profitable for instruction in righteousness, Paul said lastly, there in verse 16. The Greek here speaks of child training. It's the word from which we get our uh, word um, pediatrician. It entails chastening. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that God chastens every one of his children because he loves us. And the primary instrument he uses is the Word of God. The Bible is effectual in all that. But then we need the Word of God. It's profitable to make us competent. Verse 17 is so reassuring that the man of God may be perfect. I think you know the word doesn't mean absolute moral perfection. It could read that the man of God may be complete or adequate, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Not just to most good works, but to all good works. A self-cleaning church is a church that goes to the Bible for help about everything, including how to do ministry. I'll just be honest with you, I don't go running around the country to try to find a conference that will teach me how to do church growth and best practices. If you think that makes me a fool, okay. I want to find it from right here. I don't believe I'm overstating things one iota when I say, beloved, if we will take to heart Paul's counsels to Timothy about keeping the church clean, keeping it alert, keeping it discerning, keeping it strong, keeping it loving. If we will take to heart Paul's words about doing that for for Friendship Baptist Church, you know what will happen? Once again, it will happen to us as it happened in the first century to the church at Jerusalem. Our church will exert such a power on unbelieving around us that the fear of God will fall on them and no one will dare to identify with us unless he's the real deal. Is that what we want? Or do we want to say we pack the church out? John MacArthur has said it so many times and I agree with him. He says, I found out that if I will take care of the breadth of the church, or the depth of the church, if I will take care of the depth of the church, God will take care of the breadth. And He will. Will you pray with me? Oh God, please keep Friendship Baptist Church pure. Please keep us true. Help us to resist the pressures, the fads of the day, the popular preachers, the latest and greatest church growth strategies. Please help us to consistently sound forth the gospel, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to make the word effectual. The letter killeth, the Spirit giveth life. May we be like that model church at Thessalonica. Help us to sound forth the word near and far so that when I talk to somebody, I'll have nothing to say or add. It's already been said. 
Help us to be the kind of church Paul exhorted Timothy to pastor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.